Okay, we are in the book of Revelation. And we've been going through this for a couple weeks. As I said, the picture is scary, but the, rook, the book of Revelation is not scary. The book of Revelation is exciting. It is here to encourage us. And today what I want to talk about is when all seems darkest. When all things seem darkest. You ever had this kind of day, church? You feel like you're the only one that the world's raining on? You're the only one that's walking around with an umbrella. Everybody else is having a good time and life is good and exciting. Sometimes when you serve God, it's not easy. And can I get an amen? amen? Sometimes as a Christian, you have to make a choice. That means you have to say no to some very good things. Amen? amen. You have to make choices that are hard. And when you have to give up those things or make those choices, the world can seem very dark and very lonely. Well, today... The Word of God speaks directly to that when it speaks to the church of Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. When times are bad, remember this. Remember this, okay? Jesus knows the way. When everything is black, everything is terrible, everything is going wrong, the first thing you have to remember, Jesus knows the way through your situation. Now, church, do you believe that if you do say amen? amen. Okay, look at it. Revelation 2. 8 and 9, Jesus knows the way. This is what it says. Now, remember, we did the church of Ephesus last week. That was the first church in modern-day Turkey. It was the church that had lost its first love, lost its passion. Now he says this, Write to the angel or the pastor of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. We're going to stop right there. You're saying to yourself, now what does this mean? Jesus knows the way. Well, let's consider, first of all, what is the church of Smyrna? What is the church of Smyrna? In the modern day state of Turkey, there is a city called Izmir. Izmir is the old city of Smyrna. You say, now, Smyrna is kind of a weird word. What does that mean? I know that's what you're thinking. I can see it on your face. Interesting enough, Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh. Where do you know myrrh from, church? Come on. One of the three gifts given to Jesus, right, by the wise guys. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was for kings, yes? Okay. Frankincense was for priests, right? Frankincense was essential in making the anointing oil for the priests. What was myrrh used for, church? Anointing the dead. Myrrh was an extremely fragrant oil. Do you know how you got myrrh? There's this little thorny, ugly, nasty, sound like anybody you know? Thorny, nasty, ugly plant that grows in Israel. And if you want to get this beautiful, sweet-smelling myrrh out of it, do you know what you have to do? You have to lay it down and you have to crush it. You have to pulverize it. You have to pound it and pound it and grind it until the oil flows out of it. Then the oil is sweet-smelling. It's aromatic. It's extremely expensive. In those days, it was very expensive. That's why it was a fitting gift for the Son of God. Because myrrh was that expensive. It was used for coating the body of someone who had died. Remember, they did not embalm bodies in those days. When someone died, they simply went there. 
They, they packed the body with, with myrrh. They wrapped it up. They packed the windings with myrrh. Then they buried them within 24 hours. It wasn't like today where the body sits around. They had to have you in the ground by night. Because why? What happens to a body after a couple days? It begins to smell bad. Well, the, the packing was for that reason, to make it sweet-smelling, to make it an aroma that would be pleasing to God. What was Izmir or Smyrna known for? Because it's always important. Whenever God speaks to a church in the book of Revelation, write this down. You need to know this. Whenever God speaks to a church, he will identify himself by something that is identified with that city. He will talk about something that has to do with the city so they will get the meaning. Okay? It was known for two things. One was the temple of the mother goddess, extremely huge temple devoted to these false, this false goddess. But it was also the center, the epicenter of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. Tiberius built a temple, Tiberius Caesar, built a temple to himself in the city of Smyrna. So just like Ephesus had the temple to Artemis or Diana, right? This huge temple that provided income for the whole community. Smyrna was really built around the worship of two false gods, the emperor and the mother goddess. So already you know there's going to be a problem with being a Christian in that kind of town, right? There's going to be a problem of saying, Jesus is Lord, when every Roman citizen was required to go by the temple, take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire and say, Caesar's Lord. Caesar's Lord. They were required to do it by law. If they didn't do it, they were seen as a rebel, as being in rebellion. In our modern culture, can you imagine anything that would be seen as rebellious? I mean, we don't have to say Obama is Lord, right? We don't have to say that. Some people think it, but we don't have to say it. What do we have to say is Lord in American culture? What things do we worship? Money is Lord. Power is Lord. Property is Lord. Position, title, those are Lords. And you know what else is Lord? Science, intelligence, edumacation. And yes, I know I killed that word. I did it on purpose. I told you, I can actually speak the Queen's English when I choose to, but it requires way too much brain power. So you have to suffer with what I have left. That's what we worship in America. And if you say Jesus is the only way, you are a heretic. You are already an outcast because American culture says all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Guess what? The Nazi party was very sincere in trying to exterminate the people of God. They were sincerely wrong. And when we worship all roads lead to Jesus, those people are sincerely wrong. Take a look at this again. Write to the angel or to the pastor, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and who came to life. What do you notice right away? Jesus identifies himself with death. You already know something's going on. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh has to be crushed, pulverized, killed as it were, in order to release its sweet-smelling aroma. Then he says what? Already he says, I'm the one who has died and who has come to life. I know your affliction. This means severe suffering. 
I know your poverty. Wait a minute. This was a preeminent city in the Roman Empire. This was like Manhattan. There were no broke folks in Smyrna. There was wealth everywhere. Unless you didn't say Caesar is Lord. Unless you didn't worship in the temple of the mother goddess. Because if you didn't do all these acceptable social things, you were an outcast. You wouldn't get a job. You wouldn't have a place to live. You wouldn't be accepted at the country club or anywhere else. You couldn't get into the best schools because you wouldn't do what they do. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Let me read something to you really quick. Philippians 3, 8 says this. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value, see dollar signs, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things, but I consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. Whatever I lost is worth nothing to me. Paul lost everything. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of Israel. He gave up everything. It's even possible he may have lost his wife because of his choice to follow Jesus Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. That goes right back to what he said, I was dead and I've come to life. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Wow. Paul was pretty ardent, and John is echoing that. Jesus is speaking exactly what Paul has said. There is nothing in this world, people of Smyrna, that you have lost that was worth anything. You lost your gold. You lost your retirement benefits. You lost your access to the public pool. I mean, Smyrna was a great place. They had these huge gymnasiums where you could go and exercise. They had all these other public facilities. But you know what? If you were a Christian, you didn't worship the mother goddess, you didn't worship the emperor, guess where you couldn't go? Guess where you were not welcome? It would be like living in a city of extravagant wealth and being cut off from all of it. Forced to see it, but not allowed to take part in it. Church, are you willing to do that in this modern day and age? Are you willing to say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and nothing you can say will change me? Are you willing to say, you know what? If I have to lie and cheat and steal for that job, I don't want it. If I have to deny Jesus to get a promotion, I don't want it. If I have to say that I believe in evolution to get my kid into a fine private school that will get him into Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Duke, I'm not going to do it. Even if it costs my children the best education they can have, I won't sacrifice Jesus. Church, are you willing to do that? Because I believe the day is coming because it already happened once. It's happened. This is not a story. This happened to real believers in Jesus. If it happened to them, it could happen to us again in this country in the days ahead. I believe that. 
Paul said nothing was worth it. Now, what's interesting is back in Revelation, he says, I know that you've suffered the slander, those who put you down, those who make fun of you, and they say they're also Christians, but they are not Christians. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Just so you know, the church of Satan is in San Francisco on California Street in an old hotel. Thank you, Eagles. I've seen it. It's there. I went to school right outside San Francisco. I've been in downtown San Francisco. I've been in the war zone. When Anton Xander LeVay founded the Church of Satan, he was not joking. He was deadly serious. And it is there. And it is real. So what was the synagogue of Satan? Was it a building in Smyrna? No, it wasn't. It's a reference back to what Jesus said about some Pharisees and some Sadducees and some really holy in their own mind people. He said, you are not of my people. That's why you don't hear my voice. You are of your father who? Abraham? You are of your father, the devil. The word devil means accuser, the one who accuses us. Jesus said, you're not of Abraham. You're not of faith. You are of the devil, of the accuser. And that's what he means here. This is just John quoting Jesus, who had already said the same thing in his earthly life. The synagogue of Satan are those who believe that they have it figured out, but they're wrong. They're deadly wrong. Just because someone says to you, I'm a Christian, does not mean they're a Christian. Until you have repented of your sin, asked Christ to save you, and experienced that regeneration of your dead soul, you can believe anything in your head you want to, but you're not saved. Jesus said to them, you believe there's a God. That's good, because the devils in hell believe in God. And they tremble. Why? Because instead of a savior, they have a judge. And that's how the world is. Without faith in Christ, you have a judge, not a savior. Understand, you will bow before Jesus at the end of days. But some of us will bow as faithful servants, receiving his blessing. And some of us will bow as convicted criminals being punished and sent into the flames of hell. That's reality. It was reality for these people, and it is reality for us today. You know, we talk about having confidence in these dark days. Friday night's Bible study was a great one. We talked about having confidence with all the things we see going on in the world. The U.S. Embassy was attacked. There was the pointless killing right here at Cameron Village. you realize that? lady was killed right here at Camera Village. They found the dead guy who killed her right next to Miss Sharon's house. He went and capped himself right there. It happened in this community, in this area. This place is not safe from the sickness of the world. But we are safe because we walk under the hand of Almighty God. That's why we're not afraid. Because nobody gets to me unless they go through my Father. And when, you, when, you're, when you're a young girl, you're not afraid of boys because you know daddy will get them first, right? That's how I am now. I'm encouraging my child. That's how it is with us. Nobody gets to me unless they get through daddy. And if daddy lets them through, there must be a reason why he lets them through. And I'm willing to go through anything my father lets happen to me. Let's press on. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Yes, 
We should not be afraid when bad things happen because Jesus knows the way. He has been there. He has suffered. He has died. And you know what? The night will end. The long, dark night of the soul will end. That's a promise. Look at this. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Notice, he doesn't say what you might suffer. He says what you will suffer. If you are a faithful follower of Christ in this world, you will, period, suffer. No way around it. There's no way to escape it. There's no way to to have a life sheltered from the pain of this world if you're following Christ. So he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil, the accuser, is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. The word test is a trial by fire. It's the way you evaluated the purity of metal. You took a piece of what you thought was gold, you exposed it to the flame, and in the flame it melted. And if it was pure, it was pure. And if it was not, all the junk would rise to the surface and you would see it. So he says, some of you are going to get thrown into prison, and we're going to find out. We're going to trial you. We're going to test you. It's also the song we sang. You guys understand what a refiner's fire is, right? The only way you can refine metal is by melting it. The only way we can be refined by God is if we are melted and the junk is scooped away. All the garbage of our life, the selfishness, the envy, the greed, the jealousy, all that gets scooped away in the refining process. Doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? It's not. It's not pleasant. I've been a believer since 1980, and believe me, God's refining process hurts. But it's worth it in the end, I promise you. He says, he puts you in prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, everybody questions, what's the 10 days? You know, the book of Revelation is about last times. They are looking for the prophetic example of what 10 means, right? We know that 7 is the symbol of, 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 of perfection, right? There's seven churches. There's seven stars in the right hand of Jesus. There's seven uh, stands on the candlestick on the menorah. So seven is that number of perfection. Guess what 10 means? You're going to be so excited to hear this. You know what 10 means? Not a blessed thing. It means nothing. 10 days was an expression meaning a short time. Paul went to prison for years. John was in exile for a long time, months upon months upon months. If you look at the way Christians suffered, they suffered not for a day or a week or a month. They suffered for years until their lives were cut short. When I look this up, this is an expression, an affliction of 10 days, meaning a short time. Your affliction, your pain will only be for a short time. Sometimes, guys, 10 days is 10 days. Sometimes it's not a huge you know, exciting metaphor, it's just what it is. He says, but be faithful where? Until you're released? Does it say be faithful until I get you out of jail? Until you die. And it doesn't mean up to the point of death, it means till you're dead. He was telling the people in Smyrna, you will face persecution. Some of you will die. And it's not because you're evil. It's not because you're bad. It's not because you didn't pray enough. It's not because you didn't tithe enough. It's not because you didn't come to church. 
you will suffer and die because that is the plan of God Almighty for your life, for your testimony. Later in Revelation, we overcome Satan with two things. Church, I'm going to give you a look ahead. Two things overcome Satan. The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Testimony means our story. It means what has happened to us. And if you tell me, well, you know what? I've always been a good person, and I've never hurt anybody. I've never lied or cheated or stolen. First thing I know is you just lied, because I know that's not true. And if you tell me you've been a great person your whole life, you've never hurt anybody, and, and you've never had any problems, you've always been blissful and happy, I've got one question for you. Did you get saved at any time in your life? Because if so, you would know that that's not the life of the believer. We don't live peaceful, harmonious happy, pain-free lives. This is the world. The world is full of sickness and death and pain and suffering, and guess what? That applies to Christians as well as non-Christians. If you doubt me, look anywhere in the Bible for any believer who suffered a life with no pain, and you won't find one. They all went through misery. All the apostles died a painful death, except John. John lasted to the end. And as soon as he wrote Revelation, he died of old age and hard times. But old age is not easy, trust me. It takes a little bit of willpower to get through it. So 10 days, just a short period of time. And even though you may die, don't worry, you'll be victorious. Why would, why would Jesus say you'll have this, this, this crown of life if you, if you persist? Why would he say that? Give you a hint. Go back up. He says, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. That's what Jesus did. He was faithful to death, even death on a cross. He suffered the grave, and God brought him back to life, the resurrection. That is what we have as his promise. If it happened to Jesus, it'll happen to us. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they kill me, what are they going to do to you? Kiss you on the cheek and give you a vacation? No. If they kill me, they're going to kill you too. Now, fortunately, we live in America where we're relatively free from being killed for being believers. But consider what I've told you before. Over 300,000 Christians are murdered every year in this world simply because they are Christians in a country that doesn't tolerate their existence. Right now, you're free to be a Christian in America. My question for you is this. What happens when it's illegal to be a Christian? What happens when you can't say, I'm a deacon in my church, and we believe in Jesus Christ, and we believe in the Bible, and if you don't change your story, they're going to throw you in prison and take away your house and take away your cars. What are you going to do then, church? Are you going to say, go ahead, throw me in jail? What can you do to me? I believe the day is coming when police are going to come through that door. And they're going to grab your pastor, throw me on the ground, handcuff me, and throw me in jail with a huge guy named Max who likes to knit. If that happens, come visit, please. I believe the day is coming when the preaching of the gospel won't be tolerated in this country. And you know what I say? Go ahead. Lock me up. And I'll preach on the inside as well as doing the outside. I'll go out swinging. Because I believe this message 
belongs to all people, and everyone needs to hear it. James 1, 2 says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Okay? In the gym, what do we say? No pain, no Bengay. Right. <laughs> no. no pain, no Bengay. No, it's true. No pain, no gain. If you don't push your body past its comfortable level, it's not going to grow in muscle tissue, muscle density, strength, etc. That's what it takes. That's why in boot camp, they make you walk your tail off and your gut off and everything else you have extra. Because they walk you and walk you to build up what? Endurance. To build up physical strength and stamina. When you go through a small test, like a friend rejecting you because you're a Christian, that builds up a little bit of endurance. Because the next test may be larger. Instead of losing a friend, you might lose a family member who doesn't want to associate with you because you're a Christian. Then, even worse, you start dating a guy and he's wonderful and handsome and he still has his hair and no excess stomach. He's a wonderful catch until you figure out the fact that he is a pagan. The thing he worships is science. He worships education. He worships the History Channel, my favorite station. Actually, I love the History Channel. It keeps me on my toes. It really does. What do you do when you're deeply in love with somebody and they don't accept Jesus? That's when you need endurance. And it starts with a friend. And it goes to the family member. And it goes to the boyfriend or the girlfriend. And it winds up when you say no to a six-figure job right out of college because you won't accept their secular, humanistic garbage. And if you don't know what secular humanism is, it means that man is God and God ain't. That's secular humanism. It means I am the measure of all things. I am God. My wife may think so, but I don't think so. Y'all missed last week, didn't you? Okay, there it goes. Anyway, okay. No, last week we were, we were playing on the worship team, and I said something, and my wife says, yes, Lord. And I said, finally. <laughs> Brother, Brother Bach and I had a high five over that one. Woo, our wife's calling us Lord. We're good. No. Anyways, that's the measure of perfection. And the word perfect means what? Mature, fully developed. The perfect man is not morally perfect. He is able to make the mature decision. He is willing to say no to what is wrong, even if it costs him money and a position and earthly security. Can you make those decisions, church? You can only make them when you start with the small ones by standing up for what you believe in. All right, let's finish this thing out. Revelation 2.11, and we are done. Okay, one, Jesus knows the way. Through the darkest night, he knows the way. Two, the night will end. There is coming an end to this, even if that end is your death. And finally, one day, night will never fall again. You realize that, don't you, church? In the new heaven and the new earth, night will never come again because there will be no sun. There will be no moon. God will be the light of his kingdom. So one day coming soon, no more pain, no more tears, 
No more hard decisions. No more lonely nights. No more feeling cut off from family and friends, from feeling cut off from the world, from feeling like you can't be part of everything. It's funny because I saw, I saw Pastor Stanley, Charles Stanley, preach this morning. I love to watch Stanley in the morning because he gets me pumped up. And they wrote him a letter and said, Pastor Stanley, see if this sounds familiar. Pastor Stanley, is it okay for me to hang out with my non-Christian friends? If the boy had stopped right there, it would have been easy. But he had to open his mouth and stick his foot in it. He says, what I mean is, can I go to the bar and hang out with them if I'm not really drinking? Can I go to clubs if I'm not really chasing girls? Can I? And he just kept going, dig that hole, dig that hole. Can I do everything that my friends do as long as I don't let it affect me? And Pastor Stanley says, no. He says, they will drag you down before you pull them up. Your decisions will be affected, not theirs. Your decision-making will be corrupted, not theirs. He was saying, you don't make the world your standard of living. You don't make other people's idea of what's okay your idea because they don't respect Christ. Jesus set a standard, and it is high, and it is difficult, and it's not easy. But it's the only standard acceptable to the one who loves you and called you by his name. That's what it comes down to. Look what it says, verse 11. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. That's the cap right there. If you do not have that underlined in your Bible, you need to replicate your pastor's PowerPoint. Underline that verse. Death is not the end. There is something worse than dying. And that is the death to come. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 9.27 says this. It should be on the screen. Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, Okay, for all you happy people who go to palm readers and tarot card readers and the guys that slosh around your tea and go, oh, look, you're going to marry a handsome prince. First of all, what is wrong with your heads? You know, in our own family in the Philippines, we've had them chase after the witch doctors and the, the other people, so I know what I'm talking about. Just as it is appointed for people to die once, no ghosts, Nobody comes back from the grave. You got that? No such thing as ghosts. Demons, yes. Ghosts, no. I've met the one and not the other. Okay. This is what it says. And after this, the judgment. Once you are dead, you are judged. And that judgment is permanent. You know what that means? There's no use in praying for the dead. Because the dead are judged. There's no need in lighting candles for the dead. The dead are judged. There used to be this boob that walked around in the Middle Ages. And his motto was this. When a coin in the coin box rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I got news for you. That joker, when he got in front of Jesus, I hope Jesus just tore that boy up. Because he didn't know what he was talking about. He was telling people, if you pay money to the church, your relatives who are, you know, 
heathens and pagans. Your money can get them out of purgatory. Guess what? It ain't in the Bible. It don't work. It is appointed unto a man once to die. Then judgment. Understand, if you don't get this, the world will turn your head backwards and fill it with garbage. There is no chance after you're dead. Okay? When Jesus descended into hell during those three days, he wasn't trying to fish people out of hell. He was saying, I win. Satan, I win. You lose. There was no hope for those who were already lost. In this world, anyone who is dead now pays the consequences of their actions. Only those who, who are alive can choose Jesus. And don't wait to the end. I guarantee, when you are on an icy road, in a mountain pass, in the middle of winter, and your van is going over the edge, and you're looking down, you don't say, Lord, I really am sorry for all those sins I committed. <laughs> what comes out of your mouth is nothing like that. I've done it twice, I know. Anyways, it says this in verse 28. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Who's waiting on Jesus? Those who believe, those who call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever believes in the Lord shall be saved. That belief is not up here. That belief happens down here. Okay, consider Revelation 20, 14. The larger passage is 7 through 15, but that's a sermon all by itself. Revelation 20, 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Understand, when you die, you go to one of two places. You go to the side of Jesus or you go into a waiting pen. The word is Sheol, the place of darkness. You won't see your friends. You won't see your neighbors. You won't see your wife or your husband. And I see you smiling now, don't you? Yeah. You don't see anybody in Sheol. In Sheol, you are completely alone with your sin. Imagine being in a dark place not for a day or a week or a month, but for years and decades and centuries with the only thing on your mind, all the chances you had to accept God's love, and you didn't. That's what Sheol is. And that's not the worst part, people. The worst part is at the end of the thousand years. At the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, those who are the unrighteous dead will be raised up to justice. And in that day, the lake of fire will be opened. Satan, his angels, death, Hades, the false prophet, the antichrist, they go into the eternal flames and they are joined by whosoever rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? Rejecting is a passive thing. You don't have to say, I don't believe in Jesus to reject him. You know what you have to do to reject Jesus? Not accept him right now. If you put it off, you have rejected the Son of God, 
and that is your eternal fate. You know what's funny? I always thought hell would be very bright because the flames and everything, right? I had a scientist tell me, do you know what the hottest flame in the world is? A black flame. A black flame is the hottest flame known to science. It is so hot, it's invisible. But it's virtually black. I've seen blue flames, yellow flames, red flames in the, in the science lab doing experiments. He said it's so hard to create a black flame because it's so intense, it consumes everything. Consider this, church. When hell opens up, it's a big black hole. It's a place where you go and you never come out. No reprieve, no pardon, no exit visa, no time length that you serve and pop out. I'm being serious because I really want you to understand. Hell's nothing to mess with. It is a reality that is more terrifying than a black hole or a stupid nova. Whatever you want to look at, it's more terrifying than all of those things. Because why? It's permanent. It's eternal. And what Ms. Sharon said is right. Right now, sitting here, you are alive. You are breathing. Perhaps you feel the movement of God in your life, knocking at your heart, warning you that this is all true. The second death will only touch those who've rejected Jesus. Because those of us who are alive, when the rapture comes, it says those who died in Christ will be raised. Those who are alive, caught up together with them in the air. That's not really a resurrection. It's just a rapture. The first resurrection doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. Then all the tribulation saints, those who died for the testimony of Jesus, they are raised. That is the first resurrection according to the book of Revelation. The second resurrection is the one nobody wants to see. That's when Sheol opens up, vomits out all of those who've rejected God through the history of the world, and they are judged permanently. And that's when time ends. No heaven, no earth, permanent judgment. And then there's a new heaven, new earth for those of us who are in Christ. What happens after that? We don't know. But it's going to be good because we're going to be with Jesus. So, what darkness are you facing today? If I was to ask you that question, is there a darkness in your life? Is there a place of fear? Is there a place of uncertainty, a place of anxiety, something you're not certain about? What would it be? Let me offer you three things. One, no matter what you're facing, cancer or marital trouble, trouble with your children, tell you something, trouble with your children can hurt you more than anything else in the world. Making decisions you have to make, that's tough. You are not alone. All believers already have or soon will be where you are. Whatever you're facing, we're going to be there with you. I always love to tell young people, young people, you want an encouraging thought for the future? I'm your future. This is what you're going to be in 40-some years. Yes. I should scare the Hades right out of them, shouldn't it? I scared Jesus into you, man. Guess what? If you are young and thin and attractive, don't worry. It'll be over very soon. I always like to say, that just makes me feel better to say that. It really does. Whatever, whatever you've been through, we've either been there before and can go through it with you again, 
Or if, if you're not going through with anything right now, be happy. Your day's coming. It's coming. Two, Christ knows what you are feeling, and he can lead you to victory over these issues. Whether it's an uncertainty about what to do with your life, whether a difficulty in a relationship, whether it's making decisions that will affect your future. Do I compromise my beliefs? Do I do, I do what's wrong just because somebody else told me to do it? There were a whole bunch of guys in uniforms right after the Second World War who said, I didn't do anything. I was following orders. A place called Nuremberg. Remember what they did to all the guys that said I was following orders? They shot them anyways because they had a choice. If someone tells you to do a wrong thing, it's your choice to do the wrong thing. Understand that. You have to take responsibility. Last, like the church in Smyrna, we keep our eyes on what we have. We have Christ, the promise of his return. We have the fellowship of his sufferings. He suffered for us. If we go through something on his behalf, he is with us in the midst of that. We can't focus on what we seem to lose or what we have to give up or what's not right for us. We have to keep our eyes on what is God's glory. So if you make a decision that's hard, if you have to give somebody or something up because it's not right for you, God is with you in the midst of that, and there's a blessing that comes from doing what's right. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this message, this encouragement. Father, I thank you that you have been there. Father, you, you encountered persecution. You encountered hatred. You encountered those who turned against you. Lord, you encountered those that you thought were family, and they said you were crazy. You encountered those who should have known who you were, and yet they didn't know. And that some, Lord, they knew who you were, and they rejected you anyways because they didn't want to give up the authority over their own life. Father, I ask you, don't let us be like the rich young ruler. Don't let us be unwilling to follow you because we have such great wealth that we want to hang on to. Help us be willing, Father, to give it all up for your sake. Lord God, I just pray we take the encouragement of Scripture that we will never face the second death. We will never face the agonizing uh, sight of that, of that dark, black pit opening up and knowing that we are going there only because we rejected your love. We rejected your mercy. We rejected your grace because we wanted to do this and do that. Father, help us to hear your voice today. Call us, Father, to faithfulness. And Lord, if there's one here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, one who has not responded yes, one who has not cried out for mercy, God, may this be the day when they cry out from the depth of their heart, desiring grace and mercy, desiring forgiveness to be restored to you so they might have the same strength in the life we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.